0: Hi, I'm Ken Sweeney. This is the comfortable spot. Welcome. It was March 6, 2022 that I released my first episode of The Comfortable Spot. One year and 41 episodes later, I'm still hoping that you're sitting comfortably and happy to stay with us. Thank you so much for the amazing comments and reviews so far, and it means the world to me. Now I'm taking a few weeks off to recharge and edit the episodes I have recorded for season four. So in the meantime, you can access the archive or you can join me on my page at Buy Me A Coffee. Maybe you're wondering why I decided to set up a page there. Well, like almost everything else, the cost of running a podcast is increasing. Most of the host platforms are raising their charges. And if you are an independent podcast producer like me, you have to invest in a promotion budget in order to get your podcast out there, which can be very expensive. And there are thousands of podcasts being produced on a regular basis every week. And like me, they are working hard to grab your attention. So, in order to cover some of my costs and invest in production and presentation quality, I've decided to set up an account on Buy Me a Coffee. I think it's a good way to interact with my listeners and in this way I don't have to resort to those horrible advertising breaks that are appearing in podcasts over the last few years. I promise that I won't resort to them no matter how difficult it gets. I'm always on the lookout for a sponsor but I am mindful of what they do and the impact it would have on my podcast so I'm careful about who I partner with. So I hope you'll be able to lend a hand and make a small donation or better yet try being a member and see how it goes. I'm working on some special access points for members so keep an eye on what's coming up. If not, you can always leave a rating on the podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple. You wouldn't believe how it helps, so please do if you can. Finally, as Season 3 draws to a close, I promise I have lots of new great guests coming up in Season 4, and I really hope you will stay with us. Now let's get to my guest, who is broadcaster David Goldstrom. Over the past 20 years, David's commentary and voiceover work has embraced Ski Sunday, the Commonwealth Games, and numerous Summer and Winter Olympics including Tokyo 2021 and Beijing 2022. David is presently a senior commentator for Discovery Eurosport, focusing on the Winter World Cup ski and ski jumping season, along with the major canoeing, rowing, weightlifting and equestrian championships of the year. I was delighted to have David with me to chat about his career and winter sports in general. So I hope you're sitting comfortably and happy to stay with us. David, hi, thank you for joining me on The Comfortable Spot. You're very welcome. Good to be aboard. I've been following you for around 20 years with the uh, winter sports. I mean, it's hard to believe it's 20 years now, but um, just mostly with the ski jumping. And uh, for those who don't know what the ski jumping is, it's a discipline within winter sports where they just basically go down a very long uh, slide and just try and jump as far as they can and fly a little bit as well. Have I got that right?
1: Yeah, the principle's uh, exactly that, whether it's on a, a small, a medium, a large or even a flying hill.
0: Yeah, and it's really brilliant. Um, in that how it's developed over the last twenty years, because when I first watched it, it was it was very much of a niche sport. It had a few of few little yeah kind of idiosyncrasies, especially due to the fact that it got a little bit of publicity in the nineteen eighties with uh, Eddie the Eagle. But uh, it's it's a quite a professional sport and and pretty dangerous as well, isn't
1: it? It is. I mean, you you have to have ability, uh, obviously, uh, to be able to, in a sense, ski in a straight line as you come down the in run, but. Undeniably, you have to have some courage to to do this sport because, as you say, uh, despite all the measures that are taken these days, uh, there is inherent danger.
0: Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. I mean, I, I, I've I've been in Zakopane and I've seen even the young kids doing it on the smaller um, ramp and. It's it's a feat of bravery which I could never do even in my younger years. Bungee jumping as far as I got, but apart from that, that would be <laughs> that would be way beyond way beyond any of my abilities. Uh, I just wanted to ask you because you know you are the voice of winter skiing for me and also for winter sports because I got to um, have the, the the luxury of watching all the Olympics over the last uh, say twenty or thirty years, and you've been involved in all of that, be it with BBC or Eurosport in particular. I'm just wondering how did you get into commentary what was it just by accident or did you say one day i'd love to do that uh
1: actually it was a bit of an accident um i uh, was working uh, uh with a variety of companies uh, including itv world of sport um, and a lot of the work i did was production work and i was i guess better known in that sphere more than i was in commentary because i hadn't really been doing any commentary although i had been out on the circuit uh, previously doing reports for uh, bbc world service
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, but what happened was very simple uh, in the early 80s the men in the alpine world cup used to compete on the weekends and the women were generally racing during the week and then suddenly the international ski federation they changed the calendar and the format and both the men and the women were competing on the weekend And I happened to be in the office uh, at the World of Sport uh, when someone says, well, what are we going to do? Because Emlyn does the men's, but he obviously can't do the men and the women at the same time. And they said, well, we'll have to find somebody else. And I just piped up and said, I can do that.
0: Popped your hand up. Yeah. And
1: uh, they went, uh, no, you can't. And I said, no, I can And they said, no, you can't. And eventually they said, okay, fine, but you'll have to do a test. And they gave me, uh, uh, you know, video to go away and prepare for a couple of weeks and then come back. And when I did come back, uh, it went well Uh, to the extent they said, "Mm, hmm, I think we're going to give you another one now. And they gave me the Kitzbühel downhill, which obviously I knew, but I hadn't prepared. Um, And that didn't go so well. (laughs) But they thought well enough to give me a chance. And they said, OK, um, would you be happy doing the women? And I said, I was absolutely delighted to cover the Women's World Cup. And that's why I was on the Women's World Cup circuit with some of the great women skiers, uh, Michaela uh, Maria Vallesa, Michaela Vecchini. These were, you know, these were Swiss greats, but they were fantastic women sportsmen in their own right. And so it, it kicked off from there. And then ultimately, uh, for the Calgary Olympics in 88, uh, I got invited by the BBC. I'd been working for Ski Sunday for a season or two, and they invited me to come over to work for them. And I went to the Calgary Olympics.
0: And it's funny because we didn't obviously have a lot of live TV at that time. I mean, Eurosport didn't exist. Um, and as you say, World of Sport, for those who don't know what it is, I mean, I was re- I was brought up on World of Sport, even though I was based here in Ireland. You know, it was the Saturday afternoon show. Dickie Davis would come on. You know, we'd have uh, lots of different um, sport from all over the world. I even remember watching North American soccer on, you know, World of Sport. It was a really brilliant program. But when it got to the live stage, was that exciting for you as a commentator?
1: Yeah, I mean... Um... Uh, You know, I was uh, uninhibited because I hadn't challenged myself uh, at that. You know, it was commentating on what you saw and it was using your own skiing knowledge of, you know, uh, how to actually ski, whether it was a downhill, a giant slalom or a slalom. And, you know, that was that was really good. And as I said, I had a a really fortunate time because there were some great, uh, not too many British skiers. Uh, featured in those days, but, you know, there were some great skiers from uh, around the world. And when I went to uh, Ski Sunday and ultimately ended up in Calgary, it was when I was invited up uh, to uh, just discuss with uh, a very uh, famous producer who now runs Fox Sports um, about the startup of Eurosport. And he said, well, you just do one or two days a week. Why didn't you come and work full time for us? Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, this man, who actually was working before with Kerry Packer, he was involved in the development of cricket, and you know how those two uh, modernised or commercialised uh, cricket. And he said, "Okay, we're going to be based at Isleworth with Sky. Come over and work with us, and you know, build up the team and do everything uh, that you so much enjoy." So I did, and I ended up being the first i doing the first live commentary for Eurosport, which was Maria Valessa winning the downhill in Vail.
0: And it's a funny thing because Eurosport, when you think of Eurosport even though there's a very strong British contingent in it, and it's kind of very British in the way it's produced and published and so on. And as an Irish person, we have all of your TV. So we're, we're 100% familiar with how British television is working. But it still manages to capture a very European feel. And that's what I really like about Eurosport. And it's never gone down the road of kind of overhyping sports very much. What I used to love about Eurosport was that most of the time, I don't know whether it was production costs or whatever, there was very little build-up. You just, when they came on... The event was about to start, so it was it was really great like that. You didn't have to sit for an hour and listen to pundits talking about things. Um, now it's changed obviously a little bit, and it's in some cases for the better. But I wanted to ask you what you think is the success behind Eurosport and why over the last say twenty years since it came from when I think it was Screen Sport before that, and how how evolved it's gone and how big it's gone. Can you tell me in your own opinion what you think it, the success has been?
1: Well, Screen Sport was actually a rival company. Um, and eventually in the early nineties, they merged, but the, the great thing about, uh, all right, I want to pick up on one thing. One of the joys of working for Eurosport and whatever the sport is, uh, is that as a commentator, uh, I can be happy for anybody from wherever they come from being successful and sad and commiserate with anyone who has a bad day at the office. And that's always been, you know, one of the, you know, main planks of what we do that, uh, you know, yes, from time to time we do have British athletes who do well. But obviously we reflect that because it would be unnatural if we didn't. But we don't uh, tend to go overboard. And we also recognize, you know, when when um, a British athlete would succeed. Uh, we recognize who they've beaten, but vice versa as well. So if the British athlete happens to come fifth or sixth in a world-class field, we recognize that and, you know, who they're actually competing against. And I think that's one of the great things Uh Eurosport came onto the scene as a broad church of uh, bringing uh, all sorts of sports, some bizarre in the early days, uh, we had all sorts of things like tractor pulling, and it, you know, people you know laughed. They criticised us, but you know, we had a an open door and an open mind to what we could bring. So that actually was one of the joys of bringing it. And you know, we started off in Isleworth. Then uh, we moved to Paris, uh, where really the you know the company, the brand got uh, established. And uh, we worked with a a very good man called Daniel Portra, who was also a former commentator and uh, uh, understood production and commentary and was very supportive in, you know, bringing us all on in that regard. And, you know, we had great opportunities to, you know, to actually be at these major events, which is an amazing privilege.
0: And. As you, say, as you say, there was when it's early days. It was um, it was you know as you say putting out there whatever it could. But for me, there was three elements that it had that were really successful. Number one was the motor racing. It had brilliant motor racing, and even in the early days, it would cover say a lot of American racing, IndyCar, that kind of thing. And then you had the cycling, which at the time I think it was in the late nineties, sorry the early nineties, it was very popular, but it wasn't getting a lot of exposure on the main TV channels. And then you also had the winter sports. And for me, I think all of them, the winter sports has been the mainstay sport. It's like the backbone of your sport. It's just done so well. And there's just so much of it that Sunday before we had kids in this house was, you know, ten o'clock in the morning, <laughs> right through till six o'clock. We'd be watching the ski jumping, we'd be watching the downhill and the cross country, because my wife's Polish, so uh, she she'd lots of uh, lots of interest in, in with both Adam Mawash and so on and then uh, in the in the cross country as well. So It's been a mainstream for us in the household uh, in regards to ski jumping and so on and all other winter sports. And I just wanted to ask you about the next big thing in winter sports. Do you think that there is something coming through there that is going to be, you know, a big sport? Because when you look at the Olympics, there are a lot of trial sports, but we don't seem to see them after the Olympics. So I'm just wondering... You're you're right on the tip of there, so you you can see what's coming up. Is there anything that say going to be the next big thing in when it comes to winter sports?
1: Well, they have been talking about snow volleyball, but okay. uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, you know, I mean, obviously the, uh, the the you know the International Olympic Committee are very conscious of the fact that they want to build uh, younger audiences for the future. So we've seen you know border cross coming in. We've seen. Um, a lot of the aerials and the snowboard competitions, uh, those have really been uh, popular and very, very effective. And we've seen, actually, uh, in that regard, some really good British success in in, in those elements there. Um, but not to say that, you know, people like Dave Riding haven't, you know, flown the flag uh, extremely well. And we've got a crop of youngsters that are coming through that do give us some hope. Um, the, the interesting thing, I think, for... Uh, the the winter sports is really uh more uh connected at the moment or the the talk is about obviously climate change which uh, is affecting all of us and uh, that's one of the areas also um the cost i mean for example just to give you an idea um the next olympics are at cortina d'ampezzo the ski jumping will be in Trento, in Predazzo, where we have hills, but they exist no more because they've been knocked down and they're now being uh constructed. Now, the original cost for the new complex was uh 19-20 million euros. That's now gone up to 30 million. Wow. Uh, which is which is huge. Um the the good part is that uh we go there for world cup every couple of years but also there are other competitions uh, continental cup both the women and the men uh competes and would compete there so it will get a reasonable amount of usage but obviously to to pay back 30 million dollars is uh you know is is quite a lot of uh, investment uh, and they've also updated or are updating uh, lago de tesoro which is down the road for the cross country which i think is a a great stadium, and the Italians have done a great job at World Championships there. So I think those are going to be uh, really, really important. But uh, the other important side is what we did in Visva in early November, which was what we call the hybrid opening to the World Cup, where we had a refrigerated in run but plastic uh, landing out zone, uh, which we used there, And this was a test. It was an experiment. Uh, We know that we use plastic in the summer. And the thinking there was, well, if temperatures are going to go up, um, plus the fact that the cost of electricity is so high now for snowmaking, um, could we have a refrigerated in run and land on plastic? And it did work well. And this was an important step forward to give us a uh, pathway certainly for ski jumping in terms of where we go in the future because when you look at a lot of uh, other disciplines in alpine um that's could be you know interesting and problematic are we going to have to go to higher altitudes and that obviously uh, has an effect as well in terms of performance and training and and also, you know, just uh, getting spectators in the crowd to those altitudes.
0: Yeah. So this was the next question I had to ask you about, which was climate change. I mean, have you noticed that it's actually real, that it's happening? Because you still have people around who say, oh, this is not happening. But I can see it when, when the ski jumping is on. The background used to be covered in snow 10 years ago when you went to somewhere like Garmisch. And now it doesn't seem to be that way. So how, does, how do you see it?
1: Well, go, go to Western Europe, uh You know, November, December, early January, and we were uh, cancelling, rearranging, or not we, but the International Ski Federation was cancelling, rearranging uh, events all over the place. But uh, just as important, uh, perhaps more important, the ski business in those areas was really suffering. Yeah. Um, And, you know, would you book a holiday uh, with the uncertainty of not having any snow? No, (laughs) Uh, that's for sure. Yeah. You know, then... The business becomes more precarious if everything is last minute.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, So, uh, yeah, there is a concern. I mean, the the eastern side of Europe, Austria, has fared better, and we have had decent amounts of snow. And fortunately, you know, just the last weekend, Le Rus hosted the cross country. That was, you know, reorganized, Uh, but Nordic combined. uh, It's the baby brother of the winter sport uh, disciplines but that has been really messed around but there was one uh moment when everybody was struggling for snow when and and struggling with warm temperatures and Ottopa uh in Estonia was minus 20. Wow. so it was you know it was really bizarre uh but clearly uh things are happening and under Sandro Patile who took over from Walter Hofer as the director of ski jumping. He's very much looking forward, you know, to, you know, uh, finding solutions, testing how we can address this um, on the basis that this is going to become a problem that we, or an issue that we have to deal with. Equally, you asked me about uh, new inventions. Well, uh, the Super Cup in ski jumping is uh, one new uh format which we're testing out this season as seems to be uh, popular involves three rounds of jumping and it also because it's two uh, athletes per team what it does do is it gives an opportunity for the smaller nations to actually uh, compete on a much more uh, level field uh, a lot of countries you know when it comes to a team event of four um they they find it hard to field you know, four very strong athletes, but two makes it uh, very realistic. And so that's encouraging as well.
0: We've touched there a little bit on the World Cup and we've touched a little bit on the Olympics. As you say, the cost is, is spiraling for each Olympics. And I'm just curious to know what you think about this rising cost and how can we um, address it? is it is the cost because the facilities are so expensive to put together or is it just that it's it's this the payments that they have to make where it be to the organizing bodies or whatever how how does it work that you know you each each four years they just keep rising and rising
1: well i mean the you know as the olympics is uh, given out uh is some seven years it's awarded some seven years in advance and you know that's a that's a long time so you're doing all your budgeting you put that into the ioc um the commissions have evaluated it and the winner is announced and then uh, you can imagine in a period of seven years if you think back what's happened over the last seven years um it's enormous um and you know even well i i think uh if you if you know a little bit about construction the price of cement has absolutely rocketed um and also you know there are issues about the uh, Ecology of using cement and concrete to the same extent. So I think uh, there is an awareness of uh, trying to use the same facilities uh, where we can. But there has been, you know, some reticence from cities around the world to to bid and to think two or three times before they put a bid in now, because they are conscious of not burdening. Uh, Their citizens with uh, huge taxes afterwards, and uh, also you know at the uh, last Winter Games, Beijing, uh, it ended up uh, being where we where we went, uh, but that was essentially because Almaty, which was the rival contender, withdrew. So you know the competition has uh, decreased in in that regard, and I think it's. It's it's not because people wouldn't want to host the Olympics. It's it's the fact that they are very conscious of the cost and the uncertainties of, you know, climate change. Um, cost of living it's 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 everywhere
0: yeah and of course the winter Olympics are limited in terms of where it can be hosted so it's not like as if you have an ambitious city say like um South Africa Johannesburg might want to host the uh, the you know, summer Olympics it's easy for them to do in that respect because you don't have to worry about the weather or weather facilities but I'm wondering could the alternative be for the winter Olympics that a nation would hold it rather than a, a city
1: well you <laughs> uh you know we already um you know if you think of the Summer Olympics, we've had situations where uh, certain competitions are held not in the same you know the same place. I mean, I think Paris has got um surfing out in 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 Polynesia uh, because uh, it doesn't have the you know the right facility for it um so I think you know the idea of uh, you know so th- I think it's again, it's a, it's a, it's a money uh, factor, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, really we've seen some level of experimentation by FIFA, by trying to, you know, and, and also rugby union, trying to look at, you know, multi-country, uh, hosting of competition. So I wouldn't say that it's, it's impossible, but you know, when you looked at, um, you know, where, w- when you look to say France, uh the obvious place that you would you know hold it is you know like in Savoie and uh, Haute Savoie although I suppose you could think about well could uh, the Pyrenees uh host a little bit of it or uh, you know um, what about the uh, indoor events like speed skating short track skating ice skating could they be uh, somewhere else but uh I, I I'm too far away from the organizations at that level, if you understand me, yeah, to really know what the specific IOC thinking is at the moment. But I would imagine that there is obvious concern because of the escalating costs over the last decade, over the last 20 years, really.
0: And of course, you you've been behind the scenes in most of the Olympics over the last few years because you know we all have the famous story about Montreal, for example. I even as a kid, I remember you know my father talking about Montreal, saying how much of a you know cost and it was this team, some things weren't working. It wasn't that great of an Olympics. So over the last twenty years or so, you've been looking through who's been hosting the Olympics. Have they all done a good job in terms of organization, getting things together?
1: But there, are one or two that one or two that stand out. I mean, I think. Uh... The Lillehammer Olympics of 1994, uh, in Norway, um, in the way that that was, uh, organized was absolutely brilliant. It was also an Olympics where, uh, it was very clear that the athletes came first. Nice. We were obviously lucky because we were blessed with, you know, uh, blue skies and sunshine for the entire duration of the games. Uh, we had great athletes involved and the norwegian culture hospitality you know it just works so well and so you know in terms of uh winter olympics uh certainly that's that's uh very special in my mind but equally uh 1998 in nagano um i personally enjoyed that uh thoroughly the japanese were really friendly uh, great hosts, and uh they facilitated, uh, you know, everything they possibly could, and so what? Uh, you know, I have um, happy, happy memories uh, of that. Um, those are the, the the two that really stand out uh, particularly. Not to say that the others haven't done a, you know, a really good job, but you know, they stand out a little bit. Um, as for summer games, well, um, I've got a uh, because because it was on home. Tough. I've got to mention London. Um, uh, at London, I was, I was commentating on rowing canoeing. So I was, uh, out, uh, at Eton at the course there and, uh, they did a, a fantastic job. And of course the opening ceremony, which I was fortunate to, to do, uh, um, as well as the closing ceremony. I mean, that was just, just amazing. Um, and i do think we did a, a you know a great job and i do think we really looked after and welcomed our guests uh really well uh so you know in a sense uh, i suppose that would would definitely uh, be a high point for me
0: it was a wonderful olympics and i remember the uh the reaction here in ireland when we when we heard that london had got it because you know, there's such a connection between Ireland and the UK, and for us, it felt like a home games. Actually, we loved it. There were so many people travelled here from Ireland to go to the Olympics, and even to talk about it, how well it was run, the organisation, uh, the fact that it was really the first games that took into account recycling, even stadiums were being recycled. Um so, yeah, I have to agree. I think it was a brilliant, uh, it was a brilliant event that was just put together so well. Only as well, you know, we we knew the Brits were going to do a good job, but we didn't think he's to do that good of a job. So yeah, hats off.
1: Yeah. Also, you know, we. Uh, you're right. I mean, the London Stadium where West Ham are based now, the Copper Box, uh, a lot of uh, the vast majority of our venues, uh, Lee Valley, Whitewater Centre, which is fantastic. Um, that is due in September to host the 2023 Canoe Slalom World Championships, which is a qualifying event for Paris. Um, so there are so many of the facilities that were prepared and built for uh, the games. I think uh, that you know that's a that's a tribute to the organisation, the planning that they have longevity, and it was you know it opened eyes to I think future organisers as to how they need to you know think, and you know I certainly Paris have been very conscious of you know what they need to do so that they have longevity of their facilities as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Britain certainly rewrote the book when it comes to organising the Olympics. It was, it's still talked about today. I think what I'd like to go back to a little bit about is Britain as well. Uh, we call it the machine over here. It, it's unbelievable how much fine, uh how much financial aid goes into sports that are kind of considered minority sports in Britain. And especially when it comes to, to winter sports as well, because you've had quite a few. When you look at the gold medal tally, that's surprisingly high for Britain. And I'm just wondering, um, where where does the machine start? Where, where do these people, say, who come from a, a region of Britain that has no snow can still end up uh, skiing for Britain or being in the skeleton, for example, and winning gold medals there? Where does that start in the system? Does it start very young?
1: Yeah, it does start very young and, you know, sort of... Uh... You find that uh, a lot of it, it goes back to when they were kids and they were first taken out uh, on a skiing holiday, and uh, they found tasted it. Uh, some pick it up on television these days, uh, but obviously um, one of the windows uh, that's been important on that is Eurosport because it's brought so many sports um, to the visibility of you know audiences and particularly young audiences. I mean we always say in sport, if you're, you know, if you're not on television, how are people going to see and how would kids get interested, you know, and involved in these sports. And also, you know, I mean, one has to, one has to say the support of parents, particularly in the beginning because of the effort they have to put in, not just the money, but, you know, wherever it is, um, driving them to training and, you know, the hours that they have to put in. We all know the story about ice skating, about the hours you have to get up to actually get uh, time on the ice to train. Uh, That's still a factor these days. Um, And I think that, uh, you know, uh, the real difference is that, you know, if you're going to, you've really got to step by step move forward to get the sort of support that you need initially, and then subsequently from people like Sport England or UK Sport. And uh, as we know, not every sport um, actually, you know, achieves the money and support they would like. I mean, I'll highlight uh, another sport, um, uh, weightlifting uh, for uh, Britain. And in the last couple of years, the British female weightlifters have done immensely uh, well um at uh olympic world european and most recently of course uh commonwealth games level and that was done with uh, really minimal of support they lost a lot of support and you know they had to work under a very good chief executive uh ashley metcalf who's now moved uh coincidentally onto canoeing but um under his time there um the organization the application and the support really really worked and you know hats off i'm not saying the guys didn't make progress but the women were outstanding uh in their achievements and they were on the podium
0: yeah it's it's evidence you see it everywhere on all the major sports um there's always somebody from britain there giving it the goes and you have to hand it to that it's it's Especially in winter sports because, you know, most of the time all of these athletes from a very early age are traveling abroad. They're not at home. They're not doing their training in the local area that they come from. They're they're traveling miles, thousands of miles away to do the sport. So all credit to them. Can we talk a little bit about women in sports and particularly winter sports? Because I've noticed around the world sport for women is beginning to grow. You see it in the World Cup uh, with, with football. Um, it's also happening in other sports. Well, it's always been there in athletics, but it's really getting prominence now in other sports. And I've just noticed recently that your sport is covering the women's uh, ski jumping as well, really well. And uh, do you see that growing as time goes on in the event that women's sport, in terms of the disciplines that are not so popular, do you see that beginning to grow?
1: Yes, I mean, the uh, the, the women uh, in the world of ski jumping, I mean, we now have a much more uh, competitive field um, and, you know, over the last uh, few weeks, we've seen two Canadian women achieve their first podiums, uh, which is great because uh, it, we've lacked the, you know, achievements from North America. Um, and what's really been important, I remember the uh, women, they were first introduced into the Olympic Games in uh, 2014 in Sochi. Uh, and they they had quite a battle to get in. Um, and it was only in 2011 after the world championships in Oslo, that it was determined that there was sufficient, uh, strength in depth. If I put it that way to warrant putting them in the, the good news is that, uh, the progress they've made since 2011, since 2014 to, you know, really justify their participation. And now you see that we have developed, uh, really many more large hill competitions for the women. And they made no secret, the women, that they, you know, they'd love to be on a big hill. And later this season, we uh, should see women ski-flying in Vickersund, uh, which will be something also that they've been, you know, fighting to have the opportunity to do. We have had, you know, instances of one or two women on flying hills, uh, but, you know, this in terms of competition will be uh, a major step forward. So th- what I would say is they've earned the right um, in the way that they've uh, trained, prepared, uh, increased their professionalism, professionalism, their application to the sport. Uh, and that's uh, and that's the reward they've got now. But there are other um, sports like, uh, for example, Nordic Combined, which has a women's division now. But, you know, they're they're a little frustrated that the Olympic Committee decided that um, Cortina was too early, shall we say, for them to uh, be included. So it's a similar sort of task for them as it was for the women in the world of ski jumping uh, those years back. They've got to, you know, improve, strengthen in depth, but also – increase the level of participation because that's also a factor you know there are uh, winter sports where you do recognize that there is a domination of four five six countries and obviously we'd like to see you know more nations uh, succeeding
0: of course you look to like some of the other winter sports where women really really excel and that's the downhill skiing of course there's speed skating and I suppose it's just a case of looking at the commercial aspect of it and for me I would actually I actually watch the women ski jumping I'm, I'm not experienced enough to tell the difference really to you know to go okay you th- can see a slight gap all right but I can't you know see this men versus women sort of ratio and I think most people would probably if they like ski jumping, they'll probably get into the, to the women's ski jumping because I'm finding it in football. A lot of my friends who would have never watched women's football are now watching women's football because obviously as the more exposure they get, the better coaching they get, the better quality of the game. And I'm sure that's probably going to happen regardless of what sport women get into. It's really about investing good coaching skills, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. And you are seeing you know better coaches uh, going in and supporting uh, women's ski jumping um and obviously that's important but it's also important the level of support from national federations yeah um that, that's absolutely crucial um and you know i mentioned the two canadian women um their success uh, their coach yanko is uh, very generous when he says uh, you know he's been in charge for about 18 months and you know when you pat him on the back he said well hang on a second you know uh, this started uh, a few years before i came on board Um uh, And the reality is that, you know, to develop a ski jumping team, you're talking about eight years, eight, ten years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you uh, look at that, you have to have not only talent, but you have to have passion um, to, as a coach, to be able to drive and, you know, provide that enthusiasm and that support, um, you know, to enable, uh, in this case, we're talking about the women, the women to actually improve. And, and they are enthusiastic. You can see on the women's uh, ski jumping coverage there that they're smiling, they're enjoying it. There's great camaraderie. I'm not saying that isn't the same. It is different in the men. It's the, the, There's a little bit more grit and competition, but generally there's very good sportsmanship. But, you know, I, I'm always encouraged by that. Um, and, you know, you're right. The development of women's sport Um, really, really important. And it's recognised by the IOC and recognised by the fact that, you know, we're now uh, seeing across the board uh, the requirement for sports to have equal medal opportunities.
0: I think that's the key, isn't it? I mean, even in Ireland, probably where women would have really stood out initially in sporting, would have been around boxing. And Katie Taylor really Mm -hmm. flew the flag for us. Now we've got a plethora of female boxers and most of them are in contention for for titles and championships. But we're also learning Ireland's qualified for the World Cup in football for the first time with the female team. We're going to Australia this year. So, yeah, I mean, it's about putting good coaches in um, and making sure that as well that the finance is there because, you know, 10 years ago, the Irish soccer team were, were actually on strike the women's team, because they have not to change behind stands and stuff like that. And that was, I think, the eye opener. And when stories like that come out into the public, it doesn't matter where they come from. It really sets the alarm bells off that organizations and administrations really need to book up and and put the money in where it's where it's required.
1: Yeah, but I think also, you know, when I take you back, you asked me about, you know, how I got into commentating in the beginning. And I said, well, you know, I found myself in an office and there was a question. Mm. I said, I can do that. And I think, uh when youngsters men and women see people succeeding and they like that and they think uh, hmm maybe i could do that I, they've got to have the gumption you know to say i can do that and i want to do that and you know to go for it you know to be prepared not to not to hold back but to you know to have a go uh, i can give you a little story which is completely away from sport but okay. it's it's uh there was a friend of mine who was uh up for an audition in the theater and the audition required that you could play the guitar. And, uh, so he prepared for the audition, uh, with the, you know, the, the works that he was going to speak and the examples he was going to give. And also, uh, for several weeks worked on his guitar. He got to the audition and went through the speech phase and the passages they asked him to do and then it came to the point of the guitar and uh they said um <clears throat> could you uh give us a c and he gave them a c and uh they said no that's fine uh, and he went well uh, and he um that he was only required to play a couple of chords he did the job but the point of the uh lesson that i'm uh making here is that The advertisement said, "Can play the guitar." Now he could have been so easily put off. He discovered when he went to the audition that it was actually very easy what he had to do. Yeah. But you know, someone could have been put off. So I think the you know the moral of that story is uh, go for it. Go
0: for it. Exactly. Before I let you go, can I ask you a question that I always ask my guests? What are you listening to, reading, or watching at the moment? I know you've been very busy over the last few months, so you can go back if you want to.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. I've been uh, really busy um, because uh, it's not only the skiing. As I said, um, I, I work as director of uh, television for the European Canoe Association. So we're very much looking ahead to the canoe season. But um, uh, there's an actor who's fascinating me at the moment, who I'm trying to follow a little bit. Um, you might remember him initially um, from a program called Magnum PI. It's so, uh, so called Tom Selleck. Tom
0: Selleck, yeah, yeah, he was in Friends as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So um, I've got a bit fascinated watching Tom Selleck's work as it's progressed over the years. Yeah. And I, I sort of, at the moment, I'm fascinated by um, not only the way he's progressed, but I'm really interested about the way that he speaks and the words and the phrasing that he uses. Mm-hmm. And so at the moment, I'm trying to uh, watch quite a bit of his stuff when I get the opportunity um, maybe to uh, grab, a few, uh, grab a few phrases from him, uh, which I think is always important. You know, it's always important to uh, listen to how other people, you know, uh, present and explain. Um, and, you know, that's what we're in the business to do, to, you know, to inf- inform and explain and entertain. And, you know, I think that's really important. You can keep learning from, and I can keep learning also from my fellow broadcasters uh, and the other people I learn from, are you know, a fantastic, uh, email subscriber list of fans for, you know, the sports where I'm commentating. Um, I am immensely grateful, um, to those that take, you know, however long they take a minute or two or five minutes to, you know, to follow in and write in. I mean, it is absolutely fantastic. And not only that they are knowledgeable. They know what they're talking about. Yes, sometimes they they ask questions, and it's not only from uh, the United Kingdom; it's all over the place, Europe, and further afield. Um, so it's really gratifying, and you know, both Ione Damian and myself really enjoy that level of participation from them. And as I said, you know, from time to time, they'll come up with something that we missed <laughs> or didn't know, and. You know, hats off to them for doing it because it helps us to bring a little bit more to the program, hopefully.
0: Yeah, and we've done it. We've written in and you've read out what we've asked over the last 10 or 15 years. I'm sure you wouldn't remember, but we had a few questions that you were more than willing to answer for us over the time. So, yeah, thanks very much for that. No, it's a pleasure. And I think it,
1: you know, it works better for us in that way, you know, rather than Facebook and Instagram. Yes, we do do social media, but it's easier to you know to to do that and we you know sort of we do have one or two people who write a sort of war and peace question to us which is pretty difficult to to deal with on the day um but uh clearly there are you know a number of people who are enjoying the programs and that's great because that's what we're about you know the audience is the most important element of what we do um otherwise what would be the point you know and and it's great, and you know, I, I just want to go back to, you know, Eurosport in its former days, but now Discovery or Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. Discovery as it is now, um, you know, this bringing live sport exactly as it is, not a lot of messing around, straight in there, you see it with your own eyes, and I think that's still, you know, a, a rich contribution. To the world of sport that Eurosport and now, as I say, Warner Brothers Discovery is bringing.
0: Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, we've always, we've often reviewed our subscriptions, where it be Sky Sports or whatever here in this house, but Eurosport always, always stays on the list. So, David, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been really brilliant.
1: Well, it's a pleasure. And uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity. And uh, <laughs> I hope you're going to stick with us and enjoy the upcoming Nordic Ski World Championships, not just the ski jumping, but You know, all of the winter sports. I think Planitza is going to be a a great festival. Yeah. Um, The sad thing really is that there's only about 15,000 people there capacity that can get in on every day because they've done something different there. Um, When you buy a ticket, you buy a ticket and on that day you can go and see anything and everything rather than just one discipline. Which in a way is, um, you know, quite a good idea, I think.
0: Yeah. And listen, I've always promised myself that one of these days when you're panning in your camera on the crowd, maybe we'll say Zakopane because that's probably where it's closest to me. You will see an Irish flag in that ski jumping. I absolutely (laughs) promise that will happen. (laughs) This year we saw we saw a Polish flag with Dublin written on it. So that was good. That was close. But I guarantee you before before it's on my hit list, I will be there one day and I will fly that big Irish flag in front.
1: And uh, just one question: Have you had an opportunity yet to go to the Four Hills?
0: No, no. We see we were planning to go, but then kids arrived. So, yeah, <laughs> so we're waiting for them to get just a little bit older, so we can just go. We definitely Zakopani would probably be our best bet because we, we you know, we have we. we my wife's from Poland, as, as I said, so we'd probably go to Warsaw and get the train down and uh, do the run there. You know, that's that's probably the best bet. But yes, would love to do the Four Hills, but I'll have to wait for a while, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: Krakow Airport will be a little bit nearer.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we're family and we, we still have to train. The train is a great journey, so we'll probably do that. So that's why we said Warsaw.
1: Well, Zakabani, Zach, I mean,
0: I think
1: the great thing um, that you find at all these uh, winter sport events uh, is, as I've said so often on the commentary, yes, the sport is absolutely paramount. But it's a great social occasion. Yeah. And, you know, coming after two years of COVID and, mm. you know, empty stadiums and no atmosphere, you know, to be back and to be able to meet your friends from across the world and around the whatever country, uh, that's really good news. And, you know, people, people are really enjoying that re-engagement now.
0: Thanks, David. Um, thanks to all of you out there who are listening to us today. Uh, my name is Candice, The Comfortable Spot, and we will all see you very soon. So take care, y'all. Bye-bye. <music> Oh, <laughs>